Okay, I invite you to kneel with me now. Let's have a season of prayer and then we'll get into our study for this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you again on bended knee. We praise you for your love and care for us, for, for who you are. The Bible says that you are a God of love. You know, the world sees you as a tyrant, uh, some kind of policeman or a watchman waiting for us to, to mess up. Uh, but the Bible tells us that you are a God of love. Uh, you are a loving parent. And when we fall, you pick us up and you dust us off and you give us strength and encouragement to try again. And so, Lord, we thank you so very, very much uh, for that kind of love. Uh, and we know that you love us. You gave up your own son uh, to die a death that we deserve. And uh, you, you poured all heaven out, in essence, for our salvation in Jesus. And so we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for that. And we accept that precious gift, that priceless gift, uh, virtually priceless, uh, Lord, and we pray that uh, you will accept us into the family as you uh, as you promised to do. We we confess our sins, Lord. We pray that you forgive us. Help us to learn the truth and uh, to understand that the commandments uh, is your character, and you want us to reflect your character to the world. So we pray for grace uh, to do just that. We pray for knowledge and understanding so we may walk and live a righteous life filled with love not just as the Pharisees did uh, outwardly but to have that vital connection inside we pray uh, for uh, brother and sister Ellis here who are looking for a place to stay a home and transportation we pray that you will bless them uh, Lord and and, uh, if we can help in any way uh, make it known to us Uh, we Lift up before you Jerry's daughter, Kelly. We pray that you be with the physicians and be with her, uh, Lord, that, uh, that this mass uh, can be healed quickly and she be brought back to good health and may, and may be drawn closer to you because of it. Uh, we also lift up uh, Chris, who has a job, I guess, and moving to Kansas. That's a big step. We pray that you will walk with him, send angels to be with him and uh, protect him and be with Susan and Roland as uh, they have an empty nest, it sounds like, and comfort them, Lord. And be with us as we study now. Give us uh, direction and guidance, and may we understand the message for today and uh, make changes in our life to come into accordance with Thy will. We thank You for hearing our prayers. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Many times throughout the Gospels, uh, you find instances where it was the Pharisees who were... Um, well, first of all, maybe I should ask, has everybody heard the, the term Pharisee? There were Usually there were the two groups, wasn't there? You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and then you had the Zealots you'll hear about. And you also have the scribes. Sometimes people get confused by, by those. But that, that's what the devil likes to do. He likes to get us divided up into different factions, doesn't he? But if you read throughout the, the Gospels, you find instances where it was usually the Pharisees that were on the attack against Jesus more so than the Sadducees. The Pharisees tried to convince the people that Jesus was doing away with, oh, the ceremonies of the law of Moses. Or, uh, and, the, and the law of God. He's doing away with it. They tried that. They attempted to bring uh, him into disrepute by accusing him of mingling with publicans and sinners. Right? Now, the Sadducees, they mingled with the publicans and the sinners. <laughs> you know, a bit. But the Pharisees, they were accusing Jesus. They don't do that. They're unclean. They, they looked at the Samaritans as worse than humans. As dogs. This is this is the Pharisees. Then they said that the power that Jesus exemplified in the miracles he did was not from God, but from who? 
devil. From the devil. They attributed the works of God to that of the devil. And finally, they reasoned that it would be better for Jesus to die rather than their whole nation to perish. These are the Pharisees. As you study this out, you begin to see a pattern, beloved, of spiritual attack. Now, this pattern is repeated by Pharisees today against the remnant of God. And it actually will culminate in the mark of the beast and a death decree for God's people. But it's been the same pattern used throughout history. There's but two spirits in the world. I spoke about this a little bit at Sabbath school. There will be two spirits in this world until sin is destroyed forever and the Spirit of God is alive in every heart. Do you agree with that? Because there is a great controversy. Now when you hear the word Pharisee, that those who have heard it before, what comes to your mind? Do, do you think of today? you hear the word Pharisee? I mean, I don't. I think back to the days of Jesus, don't you? Every time I hear the word Pharisee, I think back, oh yeah, that's in the time of Christ. Does it ever make you think about our time, the end of time that we're living in? few times it has me. But usually I go back to the time of Jesus. I want to tell you, beloved, the church is still filled with Pharisees. It still is. In fact, we may be a Pharisee and we don't realize it. Yes, God forbid. And that would not be a good thing, would it? From the words of Christ we read in the Gospels, that would not be a good thing. He was often, uh, I don't want to say often, but at times he was rebuking the Pharisees. Now it's okay to be rebuked of the Lord, isn't it? The Bible tells us he does it because he loves us. It's how we respond to the rebuke. That's the key, isn't it? Jesus made some very interesting statements to the disciples concerning the Pharisees. One time He said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. You remember that? You recall that? He said, Take care, beware of the leaven. That's in Matthew 16, verse 6. In this particular instance, Jesus was referring to the spirit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that led them to ask. They were asking Him uh, to give them a sign that He was the Messiah. And what was it Jesus said? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. That's a rather strong rebuke, isn't it? Give us a sign that you're a Messiah. You know, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Especially after he just raised Lazarus from the dead. How many more signs do they need? The point was that Jesus was making was, you still wouldn't believe it no matter. You haven't believed it up to now. Later, Jesus compared their hypocrisy to the leaven. When He said, take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Luke 12, verse 1, He said, they'd come together. He had a multitude of people. It says, insomuch that they trod one upon another. They were just stacked up. Great multitude. And Jesus began to say unto His disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Did you know that... Well, what is hypocrisy? Would that be professing to be one thing when you're actually another? Uh, that would include, include probably most everybody who lives in Hollywood, wouldn't it? Things you see on movies and TVs, you're looking at hypocrites. In the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 79, I read something that really caught my attention. And we'll share it with you. She says, The principles cherished by the Pharisees are such as are characteristic of humanity in all ages. 
Get this. She says, the spirit of Phariseeism is the spirit of human nature. Whoa. That's what grabbed my attention. I'd never read that before. So I, I meditated on that and thought about that. That's absolutely true, isn't it? The spirit of Phariseeism is the spirit of human nature. And then she says, As the Savior showed the contrast between his own spirit and methods and those of the rabbis, his teaching is equally applicable to the people of all time. That's why I said, what do you think of when you hear the word Pharisee? You think back to Jesus' time where there are a lot of Pharisees alive and well today. Because the spirit of Phariseeism is the spirit of human nature. Self, you see. Phariseeism is something that's almost universal in the religious world. It exists throughout uh, Adventism. doesn't matter, conference, historic, whatever. It exists. It exists throughout uh, the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, any church. It exists all over the world because it is the spirit of human nature. Even though it's almost universal, God decided that He was going to remove this Phariseeism from the church. He removed it when He first came to this earth and when He was finished. He cleansed the temple, didn't He? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. We talked about that last Sabbath. Because wherever Jesus is, there is His church. Amen? In fact, there were but a handful of followers left in the church because of it. You realize that? Just a handful. You know, wherever Jesus went, you read in the Gospels, wherever He went, He had multitudes that followed Him everywhere. So much so, the disciples were concerned for Jesus' health. They wanted to take Him away from the multitudes of time and say, you need to have your rest. They were concerned for Him. There were multitudes that would come and push upon Him for healings and miracles. But yet when Jesus removed the Phariseeism from the church, there was only a handful of people left. From Testimonies, Volume 5, she says, Christ sifted His followers again and again until at one time there remained only eleven and a few faithful women to lay the foundation of the Christian church. Not very many. You see, God can really change the world with the quality of people that He has. It's quality, not necessarily quantity, isn't it? So, this is an alarming topic to study, I think. It's an important one to study. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Do you want to be a Pharisee? doesn't sound very good. I often pray that our church uh, will not be engulfed or controlled by the spirit of Phariseeism. And that's one of the greatest dangers. I'd rather be in a church of six people, three people, two people, two or three people who are gathered together in Christ's name. There is His church, right? I'd rather have that empty of Phariseeism than a church of 600 or 1,000 people that are steeped with it. It's dangerous. Because it's so subtle. See, that's the thing. It's subtle. It's much subtler than the spirit of Sadducees. It's one of the bigger reasons for the splits we see and the divisions we see throughout Christendom. I mean, people can see that something's wrong. But they can't figure out what it is because it's so subtle. But I want to tell you something. It's not invisible to the Holy Spirit. Amen? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a statement that left the people in a virtual state of shock. Remember that the Jewish people were raised with generations of traditions and with that uh, 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 false teachings. And these were false teachings that they believed were infallible just because it's gone hundreds of years. 
We still have those things today, don't we? Traditions and stuff that are even thousands of years old. But Jesus came to correct these teachings and these traditions. Our scripture reading today was Matthew 5 verse 20. He said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I want to ask you something. Are there going to be any Pharisees in heaven? Some people go, hmm, that's a trick question. It's not a trick question. Are there going to be Pharisees in heaven? In God's kingdom, are there going to be Pharisees? Alive for eternity? The answer is no. Now, you think it's a trick question because, of course, if a Pharisee is converted, he's going to be in heaven. But he's not going to be a Pharisee anymore. Are there going to be murderers in heaven? Well, no. Murderers are going to confess, repent, and they'll be in heaven. They're no no longer murderers. You see what I'm saying? Now, I want you to understand how serious this subject is. No Pharisees are going to be allowed in the kingdom of heaven. Not one. God will not allow it. And the reason is Matthew 5.20. They don't have enough righteousness. Now, when Jesus said this, the people were shocked. They couldn't understand that statement. It was their belief that the the Pharisees, you see, were the most righteous people in the church. And as Brother Russ said, gee, if they're not going to heaven, there's no way I can make it into heaven because, well, we know how faulty we are. If they're not going to make it, who could? So you see, these words of Jesus really kind of took the wind right out of the sails. Now it's been my experience that many churches, and in particular home churches, have been established as a protest against the Sadducees. Many historic Adventist leaders have spent the last few decades protesting the Sadducees in Adventism protesting their very liberal ideas, their worldly allegiances, their hypocrisy, their false doctrines. But in the Bible, in the spirit of prophecy, when you study it out, the Holy Spirit spends at least ten times more time dealing with Phariseeism than He does with Sadduceeism. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to speak against Sadduceeism. It's not. Because it's error too, isn't it? It's not a right spirit. But beloved, if we concentrate on that and we miss the bigger point, um, we're in trouble. The big point is not Sadduceeism. I mean, that's a huge problem. But it's not the biggest problem. Because one of the things that Jesus warned us about was to have emptiness, have a natural heart, but to have a religious garb. And that's Phariseeism. You look pious on the outside, but as Jesus said inside, you're dead men's bones. Sadducees really don't care. See? They don't believe that you can overcome anyway. See? They're the other extreme. (laughs) And that's not correct either. But it's not the biggest problem. And the really big problem is that this Phariseeism is endemic in the home church movement, in the denomination, in other Protestant churches, in fact, uh, the Catholic Church. It's all over Christendom. And it's because, as we read, the spirit of Phariseeism is the spirit of human nature. And Jesus says we have to be changed. We have to have more righteousness than they. At times, when I hear some of the leaders in the movement speaking vehemently against Sadduceeism, I recall that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were against the Sadducees too. <laughs> but you know, you can spend your whole life proving that the, the Sadducees are wrong and still be lost. Thousands of people did that in the day that Jesus was here. 
Jesus and the apostles identified where the really big problem was, and it was not with the Sadducees, though that's a problem, don't get me wrong. They were they were a problem, but the big problem was with the Pharisees. We read in Matthew 5.20 why the Pharisees were not going to the kingdom of heaven, and what was it? Because their righteousness was not enough, right? How could that be? I mean, they were the most particular people. They were the legalists. They did everything according to the letter, or so it appeared. But Jesus said they were white sepulchers. Really looked good on the outside. You know what a whited sepulcher is? Do you know what a sepulcher is? It's a tomb. And whited means that it's, what they would do in his day on tombs, they would usually plant like a garden in front of it. And they'd make it very beautiful. You go to some of the cemeteries today and you see beautiful lawns and you see certain monuments that are, have hedges and beautiful flowers and all this. And that's, that's what they termed whited. Sometimes they would paint the tomb door. Whitewash it. Whited sepulchers. A whited tomb. You look good on the outside, but you're dead inside. Now, Jesus said this about the Pharisees, about their righteousness was not enough. He said this because they didn't understand righteousness by faith. See? They had no conception of it. Really. Paul spoke of it in Romans 10, verses 1 to 3. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And then he says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Did the Pharisees have a zeal for God? Absolutely. But not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. See, the the righteousness of the scribes... or lumped in there. They were Pharisees as well. And the Pharisees consisted in external adherence uh, to the letter of the law. But Christ, what He was doing, He was trying to call for a cooperation with the underlying principles of the law through faith in Him. It's the only way we can keep the law is to be one with Jesus and Jesus one with us. And sometimes... I'll tell you what, it helps me myself to understand the law in the right way. Not a number of things not to do, but as the character of God. When I see that in the Ten Commandments, that is the actual character traits of God, I look at the law differently. The Pharisees didn't see it that way. They saw a law of things that you have to do. Joshua and I were talking about this quite a bit last week. And he's coming to understand righteousness by faith a bit better. And he... (laughs) The only way you can keep that law... In fact, this is what God is saying. And Russ, you've probably heard this before and some of you have probably heard this before. There are not ten commandments per se, but ten promises. When you have the Spirit of God living in you... You will not do this. You will not do that. You will remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You see what I'm saying? And here Paul is saying, they go around to establish their own righteousness because they haven't submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They still have that human nature. See? Pharisees made allowance also for the weakness of human nature. And when you do that, you minimize the seriousness of sin. Now what I'm saying is, you say there's no way I can overcome because I mean, I'm born this way. It's part of my human nature. Right? They made it easy to dis- disobey God. And in fact, they actually encouraged people to do so. Do you know that? 
they taught that a man is to be judged by a majority of his deeds. That is, if his good deeds are in excess of his evil deeds, God will judge him righteous. Does that sound familiar? To compensate for evil acts, they prescribed a system of works. And a person, if they did these works, they would earn sufficient merit to outweigh the unfavorable balance in their record with God. Again, does that sound familiar? Pharisees thought their system of works was a passport to heaven. In fact, that was the reason for being a Pharisee. To be more righteous than anyone else. Even God. You see, they fell for the same old trap that Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to be like God. However, Jesus said that their system of works was actually less than worthless. (laughs) Because you can't remove sin by works. Can you? Have you tried? I've tried. Can't do it. You keep falling. You keep failing. You keep sinning. Only faith in God, the God who is righteous, can save us. It's only God that can remove sin. It's only God who can remove our guilt. You know, we try to cover it up, Travis. We try to cover up our guilt. We do it in a number of different ways. Some people drink to cover it up. Some people go out and party. Some people, um, uh, they'll uh, get into drugs or they'll get into fashion. Anything to appease our senses to try to cover up our guilt. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do when they made their own clothes. They were trying to cover up their guilt. They realized they couldn't get rid of it though. So no matter how many times you may try to cover it up and get rid of it, you're going to fail because you can't do it. Only Christ can remove the guilt. And only Him. A pope can't do it. Your mom and dad can't do it. (laughs) You can't do it. And the devil, what he likes to do is he likes to to give us these certain clothing, spiritual garb that deceives us into thinking that our guilt has been removed or that it's impossible for even God to remove it. Human nature. You're born that way. You're not going to overcome until Jesus comes and waves the magic wand and you're changed. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the Creator. God can change us now and we need to be very thankful for that, aren't we? Shouldn't we be thankful for that? That we can be changed right now. Our desires can be changed right now. We don't have to have human nature dictate our decisions. I'll tell you what, Jesus saved me from a a life that was leading to death. Eternal death. And I'm very thankful that He picked me up and changed my outlook. He removed the guilt. He changed me. I don't have the friends I used to have because they saw change in me. They didn't like it. But I really wish they would. (laughs) I pray that they would. We all have decisions to make, don't we, beloved? Do you know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee? Have you ever heard of Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. When Jesus told him that he'd have to be born again if he's going to be saved, Nicodemus was in a state of shock. I've come to realize that. And in fact, Nicodemus, if you read John 3, his response to Jesus was, ba- was really a sarcastic response. And Jesus repeated it again 
even more strongly to him. That sarcasm just blew right past the Lord. He wasn't even going to deal with that. John 3, verse 3, says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. That means from above. Be changed from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? He said that sarcastically. But Jesus didn't give up, did he? You know, Jesus doesn't give up on us. Praise God for that. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a a Pharisee. So what is Jesus saying to him? Nicodemus, you're not in the kingdom of God. Now, I think to understand the shock that the state of shock that Nicodemus was in, we need to understand what the Pharisees believed about salvation. In the Desire of Ages, page 675, there's this little statement. Short statement. It says, The Jews based their hope of salvation on the fact of their connection with Israel. This is a major point in connection with Phariseeism and is actually one of the few beliefs shared by the Pharisees and the Sadducees when you study them out. Although they both believed it, the Pharisees enforced it. Don't miss that point. The Pharisees and Sadducees both believed that it was their connection with Israel that saved them, but the Pharisees enforced it. Don't we see that same spirit alive and well in the Advent movement? The organization has become the church and only those connected with the organization will be saved. Don't we see that? It's not just the Advent church. Virtually any church. Now, when you read John 3, we're told that Nicodemus was the leader of the Jews. Right? He was the leader of the Jews. In their church organization, he was the equivalent of a leader, oh, let's say, of the Southern Baptist Convention. Or you could say the General Conference, because we're Adventists. You could say that. That's what he was. He was pretty high up. Very wealthy because of it, too. Was Nicodemus connected with Israel? Well, he was, he was not only connected, he was one of their leaders. Now, if anybody's going to be saved, it'd be Nicodemus, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, friends, it's my observation, and it's just mine, that the two churches which are steeped in this Pharisee teaching more than any other churches in the world are the Roman Catholic Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm not saying that there are no others. But these two denominations are more steeped in Phariseeism than any that I've seen. And like I said, that's just my experience, my observation. The Roman Catholic Church is steeped in Pharisaical teaching. It's a works-based religion. If you fall, you do penance, you do, you know, you got to work it off. What was Martin Luther doing in Rome? He was going up the steps on his knees to try to appease God. And then the thought came to him, the just shall live by faith. I'm not required to do these works. It's impossible for me to earn salvation. The just shall live by faith in God. It's His righteousness that saves us. At the beginning of the 14th century, friends, This is why it's important to know some history. In the beginning of the 14th century, the Pope stated in a papal bull that to guarantee salvation, it was necessary to believe that you must belong to the Roman Catholic Church. They've never retracted that. And this is why they call it the Mother Church. This is why they attempt to bring uh, all the protesting children back home. 
See, that's because they believe it. Sincerely believe it. Don't get me wrong. Many good people in all the churches. Isn't that true? But God has His system of organization. And it's found in His holy word. Right? That's what I believe. Now, the other church that is steeped in this in this teaching is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let me read that quote again. The Jews based their hope of salvation on the fact of their connection with Israel. If you believe that you're going to be saved because of your connection with Israel, what's going to happen if you lose that connection? You're lost. That's what happens, right? That's the thinking. That's the belief. That's why during the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church could put a a city under what they called interdict. And they'd say, we have the power of the keys. That's the keys to heaven. We have the powers of the keys of heaven. And we've cut you off from the kingdom of heaven. That's why when they would put a city under interdict. And when a city was under interdict, they wouldn't even perform a marriage inside the church in that city. They didn't recognize marriages performed outside of the church as being valid. Uh, they, if people wanted to get married lawfully, you had to go to a city that was not under interdict. You understand? Not only that, but when people died, I mean, the funerals could not be conducted in the church. They said no one was going to heaven because only the church had the keys. And if you were not in the church, you were lost. They couldn't even bury their dead in the churchyard. So what do you do? Right? People became terrified. Now we we wouldn't believe anything like that today, would we? That's a rhetorical question. We're told today that we have to have permission from the church to do evangelism or to express our faith in a name. (laughs) Had to get permission. That is what the Pharisees believed, friends. They said that your salvation is based on your connection with Israel. They said, We're Israel. And everything the Lord is going to do in the world is going to come through us. Do you believe that people should not be able to go to church unless they secure permission from man? Mm. It's like going to a priest to ask forgiveness for your sins. What about sharing the truth they know with anyone else without permission from the church? I mean... Let's think about this. This was this was the life of a Pharisee. This was the condition. The Jews based their hope of salvation on the fact of their connection with Israel. Let me ask you a question. John the Baptist. I mean, surely he went to the Pharisees and the and the leaders of Israel and got permission to go out and start baptizing people, didn't he? Jesus, didn't Jesus come up through all the schools of the rabbis and get permission from the church to go out and do the miracles that he did? Surely he did. He didn't, did he? Wow. When you understand their deep down belief that you have to be a member of that church of Israel to be saved, you begin to understand their conflict with Christ, with John the Baptist. You see what I'm saying? One of the problems with Phariseeism is that it's almost the truth. See? It's almost the truth. That's why it's so deceptive. It's almost the truth. In fact, it could be the truth if you understood it in the right context. That's how subtle and deceptive it is. Now let me ask you a question. 
Now let's think about this. All your study of the scriptures or what you've heard or anything, your own, and you don't have to answer me. I want you to just think about the question. How is a person saved? How is a person become a member of the family of God again and have eternal life? How is a person saved? Are you saved because you say that you believe these doctrines so now you're going to be baptized and thereby you're connected with the church? Is that how you're saved? Just think about the questions. Beloved, you know the fact that you are baptized does not guarantee that you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Because a church, an organization cannot save you. You see, that is what's called uh, sectarianism. And the, again, these two churches I mentioned before, the Catholic Church, the Seventh Adventist Church, they're really steeped also in sectarianism. It's very sad. But most people don't know it because it's so subtle, see? It's very subtle. It's the spirit of Phariseeism. And it was so rife in Jesus' day that it permeated all the disciples. That was their major problem, as you will find in in reading the Gospels. The the whole time Jesus was here, they were permeated with this spirit of Phariseeism. And the Pharisees were sectarian. And so, the disciples were sectarian as well. In Mark chapter 9, and verse 38... And this, these are some scriptures right here that really we all prayerfully need to study for ourselves and understand. It's the words of our Savior. He says here, or, or we read here, And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed, followeth not us. He's casting devils out in your name, but He's not following us. And we forbade Him, because He followeth not us. You see this understanding of He's not connected with Israel. But Jesus said, Forbid Him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in My name that can lightly speak evil of Me. For he that is not against us is on our part, is with us. Consider that for a moment. Let me ask you, was the church apostolic? I mean, it was composed of Jesus and the apostles, wasn't it? Right? So it was apostolic. John was a member of the apostolic church. He was one of the apostles. He saw someone performing miracles but not following or being a part of the church organization of the twelve apostles. Essentially. So he brought a curse on him. Told him to stop. How dare you go out and hand out the great controversy? You don't have permission to do that. You don't have permission to express your faith in saying you're a Seventh-day Adventist. That's our name. You can't do it. Friends, that's sectarianism. And as we just read, did Jesus agree with what they did? No. He rebuked them because of it. If He's doing something in my name, He's not against us, He's for us. You see, they didn't understand who and what the church was. And this sectarianism has been a cause and a curse of the church in all ages. It's an identifying mark of Phariseeism. And the apostolic church had that problem. The first three chapters of 1 Corinthians say that they were having divisions in the church. Phariseeism always brings division, friends. Because remember, it's human nature, right? And human nature is, I'm looking out for what's best for others? No, for me. 
It always brings division. It brings church splits, all kinds of problems. Within the Corinthian church, there were some people who said they believed the gospel the way Paul taught it. There were um, other people who said they believed the way Apollos taught it. There were others who said, no, we believe the way Peter teaches it. They had splits in the church over this. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12, Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's Peter, and I of Christ. Since Paul's writing, would you not expect him to set everybody straight? Uh, to show him or her that, I mean, who's right? You know, I'm the right one. You need to be following me. Well, that's what the Pharisees would have said. Paul well, had been a Pharisee, hadn't he? He oh, no, 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 Apollos is okay, Peter's okay. You need to listen to me. I mean, I'm the one that got knocked off the horse on the road to Damascus. <laughs> but Paul rebuked him instead. He asked, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul said, just the fact that you're acting this way and you're behaving this way is proof that you're not converted. You're a Pharisee. You're being controlled by human nature. Oh, you look good maybe on the outside. Do all the right things on the outside. But it's for other purposes than God's. It's for your own selfish purpose. Jesus rebuked sectarianism to His disciples. The Apostle Paul rebuked it to the church of Corinth. Wherever you see people thinking in a sectarian way, you can be absolutely sure, friends, that there is Phariseeism at work. Because it's one of the identifying marks. What did Jesus teach concerning how a person is saved? Now remember, let's go back to that statement. The Jews said that they based their hope of salvation on the fact of their connection with Israel. And if you were cut off from Israel, you were lost. That's why when the Jews came, think of this, when the Jews came to the parents of the blind man whom Jesus healed on the Sabbath, you remember that? They asked, is this your son? Who say, uh, uh, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? Now it's very interesting his parents' response. Well, even more than that, they were actually bearing false witness. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. That was true. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. That was a lie. They knew who healed him. But they wouldn't tell who healed him. Now the question is, why would they do that? Because you see, they were breaking what commandment? The ninth, the ninth commandment. They were willing to break the Ten Commandments in order to not be disfellowshipped from the church. Because if they said Jesus is the one who healed him, they would have been removed from the synagogue. Their connection to Israel would have been severed. And to the Jew, that was salvation. So they lied. They were willing to break the Ten Commandments so they wouldn't be disfellowshipped. They wouldn't be removed. They believed if they lost that connection, they would lose eternal life. But in breaking the commandments, they lose eternal life. So when you believe fair sake theology, the very thing that you believe is going to ensure your salvation actually 
when you believe it, it's going to ensure your salvation, it actually ensures your damnation. And that's why it's so dangerous. And the devil is subtle. Now I ask you, isn't that demonic? Isaiah tells us that they they call black white and white black. They call evil good and good evil. And think it's God. They put Jesus to death thinking they were doing God's service. Killed His Son. Again, the Jews taught that their hope of salvation was based on the fact of their connection with Israel. Now, Isaiah said that Israel is a vine that the Lord planted and one must be connected with the vine to be saved. Isaiah 5. Jesus decided the night that He was betrayed to correct His disciples' thinking on that point. They had believed and had been taught by the Pharisees their whole lives, for generations, that Israel was the vine. Now notice what Jesus says about this in John 15.1. He says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the husbandman. Desire of Ages, page 675. Jesus says, I am the real vine. Think not that through a connection with Israel you may become partakers of the life of God and inheritors of His promise. Through me alone is spiritual life received. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the true vine. I've often wondered if those few words didn't hit them like a ton of bricks. I mean, it was totally contrary to what they'd been taught, how they'd been raised. I mean, their entire life, their generations. The prophet had taught that Israel was the vine, but Israel was only the vine if it was connected. It was connected to God. We are only part of the vine if we are connected. You see? So if Jesus is the true vine, to what do we need to be sure we are connected? Israel or Jesus? The church or Jesus? Pharisees taught that if you were connected to the church, you were saved. If you're not connected to the church, you're going to be lost. Now, don't misunderstand, friends. There is gospel order and there is need for organization, but the organization itself is not the vine. So if the church is likened to a vineyard, how does one become connected to the vine? The Pharisees will say that you have to profess faith in the doctrines, become baptized, and then your name is written down on the church books. They vote you into membership and then you are connected. Remember, the problem with Pharisaic theology is that it is almost right, but there is always a fatal flaw in it. And here's the fatal flaw. This is from Signs of the Times. I'm going to have to get moving here. This is from Signs of the Times an article entitled, A Vital Connection with Christ. She says, There are two kinds of connection between the branches and the vine stock. One is visible, but superficial. The other is invisible and vital. So there is an apparent union, a membership with the church, and a profession of religion, which, though in itself good, is too often unaccompanied by saving faith in Jesus or living obedience to the commandments of God. The branches that are connected with Christ, the living vine, will make it manifest by bearing much fruit in good works to the glory of God. But the branches which have nothing but an apparent union will be fruitless. Remember when Jesus was going to temple, he went over to the fig tree and it had all these beautiful leaves and he looked all in it for fruit and it didn't have any. And he cursed it. Looks good on the outside, but no fruit. And so I say, if you have have that vital connection, you're going to bear fruit. As the branch cannot possibly bring forth fruit without a vital connection with the parent stock, so the Christian can be fruitful in good works only as union with Christ is made and preserved. It's not a once saved, always saved. The ruin of those who are not connected with Christ is as complete as though they had no name to live, for they are dead. Christ compares them to lifeless branches that are gathered and burned in the fire. 
How many kind of connections are there between the branches and the vine stalk? She said, there's two. One is visible, but it's superficial. You can see it. When you declare that you believe the doctrines, and that's important. Don't misunderstand. This is important. It's important to profess it, but it's much more important to live it. Right? And this is what she's saying. You know, believe the doctrines, you become baptized, church votes you into fellowship, you have a visible connection with the stock, the vine stock. That's the outward connection. But that by itself does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. You're not saved by that. She said one, the other is invisible and vital. You know, I've ne- has anybody ever grown grapes? Barb, have you guys ever grown grapes? We got wild grapes. Well, you got wild grapes. I was reading a little bit about them. When growing grapes, there's an inward connection. And you could you could say this just about with any fruit, really. But grapes are good because it's they grow in a vine. <laughs> there's an inward connection and an outward connection. The inside connection is vital as the sap from the vine runs into the branch, clear to the farthest twig. That is really the important connection, isn't it? That's the vital connection. If you don't have that sap running through there, what happens? It starves to death, doesn't it? Jesus said, I am the true vine. The Pharisee said, Israel is the vine. Which one is the true source of salvation? Right? If you want to have eternal life, Jesus said, you have to be connected to me. Another time Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you want to be saved? I want to be saved. Brother Ellis, you want to be saved? I want to be saved. Do you want to go to heaven? I want to go to heaven. You want to have eternal life? We only know 70, 80 years. Some people live to be over 100. That's all we know from our experience. When I hear eternal life, I can't fathom it. Can't fathom it. My dad lived to be 80. In our world today, that's a long time. That's nothing in God's kingdom. Nothing. Unlike what Billy Graham and Joel Osteen said, will say to you, friends, the Bible says there's only one way. There's only one vine. That's Jesus. You're only saved because you have a vital connection to that true vine. And that true vine is the head of the church. Wherever Jesus is, there is His church. If you have a vital connection, if everyone in here has a vital connection, just two or three, the Bible says. If two or three are gathered together in His name, there's that vital connection. And that is His church. Now we can talk about, and we've studied what organization is, because God is a God of order. Don't ever confuse the church organization with the true vine. Don't do it. It'll lead you to hell. It'll lead you to death in the grave. Do you really want to be vitally connected to Jesus Christ? Do you want your life to be connected with Jesus so that you are as he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, a member of his true body. Do you want the inward connection? Let's ask the Lord in prayer for that inward connection. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for Jesus. We thank you so much for your holy word that that makes, uh, makes the, the hard things to us more plain. And we pray, Lord, as we've gathered here together in Thy name, that You will bless us with the Spirit, that our connection will not just be an outward connection of profession, but that we also have that inward vital connection, that we may be always continually fed by Your Spirit 
in the study of your word, in the helping others and esteeming them better than ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless all of us who are gathered here today, all the saints on on this world, that we may come together in unity of the Spirit and finish the work you've given to us. Please protect us as we have a lot of enemies and guide us to love our enemies, cultivate that love that Jesus has within each of us. Please continue to be with us throughout this day. May we keep it holy, for Thou art holy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.